Good morning, everybody. <laughs> it's great to be here, um, and it's a, a privilege. Look at all this stuff. Uh, a privilege to be here to speak to you about uh, 1 Corinthians. And I'm so grateful that we're part of a body this morning. So grateful for what Dan just shared, that we're not alone. Um, what we've heard today coming out in worship and has blessed me. Uh, I think we've had the royal flush of Paul's letters. We've had people quoting Romans, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians this morning, which I think is some kind of record. Um, we've had, like, we've been richly blessed, and that is what the body should do for us. And I'm grateful this morning that that is what happens. But I want to talk to you this morning about 1 Corinthians. And basically, the gospel changes everything, is the point. Nothing less than a whole community, whole life, body and soul transformation and reworking according to the cross is what the gospel is all about. And I think this is what this letter is all about. And I think think Bex captured it beautifully in song to say, look, God, you have my everything. And I think that this morning is what God is after. So we're starting a new series. Um, if you haven't have a, had a chance, I do encourage you to go and have a look at what's called the Bible Project. And you'll, this is just a snapshot of uh, their thing. But on the Bible Project website, you'll find all sorts of videos and information. It's brilliant. And it will give you a really good introduction to what we're talking about, which is 1 Corinthians. Let me just pause and say, why do we even bother looking at the Bible? And maybe not a question you've ever thought about. Maybe it's just obvious. But we believe that the Bible is the authority of God for us. We have come this morning to get under its authority. Um, there's, a, there's an old phrase, which is um, it's very old. But it says something along the lines of, before the books got into the Bible, they already knew that they were authentic. Before people chose the books of the Bible, as we have it now, uh, people knew that they were the, the right ones. The, the phrase is that authenticity precedes canonicity. But the point is, these books have been proven to be good for people over thousands of years. Right at the beginning, people, when they decided, what, what exactly shall we call the Bible? They already knew that these books, this book in particular, it was good for people. And that's why we read it. Simply in it, we hear the voice of God. And that's my prayer. And that the process of reading it and rereading it, and grappling with it, reflecting on it, submitting to it, and then acting on it, transforms us. It shows us who we are, not just who God is, and allows us to be transformed into his image. Um, so this is where Corinth is. It's a nice place to go on holiday. Recommend it. It's, it's uh, Greek, this time of year actually would be lovely, I imagine. But there you go. You can't go there now, not least, well, only in your imaginations. Um, It's not a bad thing, I think, to remind ourselves that once in a while, there's some historical certainty to the things that we read about in the Bible. Um, One of the things we know most securely about timings of the early church is when Paul was in Corinth. Uh, And we know pretty much it was from the, the, uh, the, the spring of 51 AD until about the autumn of 52 AD. He was there for a year and a half. And the reason we know that is because there's something that gets recorded in Acts about the, uh, the guy who was in charge at the time, a guy called Gallo. He was actually the brother of Seneca. It's a small, small world, isn't it? Uh, um, he, he, was the, he was in charge there, and put, there's a, a story reported about how Paul is brought up before him, and Gallo makes his judgment about whether it's okay for, or not for, for 
to, for Jews to... Effectively, whether Jews and Christians had to keep worshipping Roman gods or not. And there was all sorts of ramifications. But the point is, we know when Gallo was leader of the Corinth. And that was in about AD 52. So we know, and we know that Paul was there for a year and a half. So this thing roots us historically. This really happened. Paul was really there in 51 AD. He wrote the book that we're, we're looking at now a couple of years later from Ephesus, just across the, uh, the Aegean Sea on the other side. A long journey by land, about 1,000 miles, but not too far by boat. And this was Corinth. Uh, 44 BC, it was refounded as a new city. And after 100 years later, by the time Paul wrote to it, it was the biggest city in Greece, outstripping Athens, which is just there. Athens was kind of on, on the wane. Corinth was the biggest city. It was full of new money. It was full of people trying to make it in a new way. As you can imagine, in, for growing from basically nothing in 100 years, it had an influx of people from all over, all over the empire, beyond the empire even, bringing their ideas, their gods, their stories about gods into the Corinth. And it was this melting pot of immigration. It was a city of games. They had the famous games there every two years. It was a port city with all the wealth and kind of interesting moral priorities that that entailed. Um, people came to gain wealth, gain status, gain recognition by winning the crowd, by winning money, by persuading. There were all sorts of ways. And this was Corinth where Paul lived for a year and a half. That's long enough to kind of let something get into you, get into your bones. Erica and I lived in Cairo just for three months. And still, like, I remember the heat <laughs> above all. I remember what it was like to, you know, learn to sleep with air conditioning on and drown out the sound somehow because of it just, that was the only way of getting to sleep in that place. It was so hot. But, like, this place gets into you after a year and a half. He was, actually, it was the first place Paul hung around in for a while. And that's because God opened a door for him. And this is Corinth, the city where the gospel broke in. It wasn't just a case of one more God from Paul to the Pantheon. It wasn't just one more story of a distant God from a distant part of the empire. This is this place where God broke in, brought a people into being that weren't there before through the message of a man from a, from a far corner of the empire. Jews, Romans, Greeks, all brought together in this surprising way by the name of Jesus. Just a couple of things, just to point out what people say about Corinth in the time. I'll read this to you. It says, We may note the self-sufficient, self-congratulatory culture of Corinth, coupled with obsessions about peer group prestige, succeeding in competition, their devaluing of traditions and universals, and near contempt for those without some social standing. And this is... I mean, a lot of that sounds familiar to me. <laughs> they were known for their religious pluralism, cosmopolitan immigration and trade, the priority of market forces, not only in business but in politics, and the emphasis upon recognition and honour in, in their socially constructed world. Sounds like the echoes of how in the culture we live in they are, are clear and strong. So this is Corinth, to whom Paul writes a letter, because he's heard some things that are going on, and not all is well. He goes on to talk about the divisions. He goes on to talk about sex, idols, communion, how to dress properly. I put a shirt on today. I think that's more than what he meant. Matt, how to, what about marriage in, this, in a time of trouble and famine? 
how to worship rightly as God's people. And the fact half of, this, half of the people wouldn't even identify themselves as Paul's people. Half of them were against him himself. Yeah, he writes this to cover these issues, and we're going to go through that over the next few weeks. Uh, there'll be 10 weeks, and there'll be a chance to go through a lot of these different things. Um, but for now, I just want to highlight one thing. All of that, all of those issues and things get sandwiched between two things. In the beginning, in chapters 1 and 2, we have the cross. And in chapter 15, we have the resurrection. And that really is how the book is structured. That these two things, cross, resurrection, tell you everything you need to know about how to deal with all of the issues that were thrown up in Corinth and I think probably get thrown up for us today. So what? Well, so I just want to say read it. Read it in your communities. It's not a book just to an individual. This is a book to a church, to a group of people. Read it in your communities. Read it alone. Listen to it in the car. Wrestle with it. Acknowledge its similarities, but be open to its differences that it wrote to us. Hear the voice of God to you, to your families and your communities. Let it reveal your heart, your desires, your blindnesses, and your hopes. And I'd say submit to it and act on it. Paul was giving the church in Corinth a whole new way of thinking about the world. It was like a value system transplant. I pray for us, too, that over the next two or three months, that this will be the case for us, that we will have the cross and the resurrection wholly transform us in our thinking. Amen. Let it be. I'm going to read to you. We're going to read through the first couple of chapters. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, um, do turn to 1 Corinthians So we're going to take it a chunk at a time. So I'm going to read from verse 1 to 17 in chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Kephas, which is Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you were baptized into my name. Uh, Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I just want to draw out a few things about this introduction. This is a rich introduction to a book, a, chapter, a, a book which is 16 chapters long. It's a long letter. Uh, it's not the pithy you know, two-line email that you, most of the communication we get these days is. It is a long and interesting letter, and there's some, this is a rich introduction. A few things. Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, he just literally can't stop saying it. I don't know if you notice it in the first few verses. He just keeps saying, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ, just about five times within the first few verses. It's not just because he accidentally keeps writing the same thing. This is why, this is, this is what matters. Jesus is at the center. It's right that he can't stop saying it. He's introducing spiritual gifts. Uh, we come, if you know the book of Corinthians, you'll know that in chapter 12, there's a much, you know, much more to be said about this. But he, just, he says at this point, you have received everything you need in terms of spiritual gifts. He talks about wisdom and knowledge. This is linking all through chapter 1 and 3, and it comes to a kind of head again in chapter 8. Later on it says, we all possess knowledge. Yes, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we see the great contrast later on that God's calling his people to, not to knowing things, but to love. They were waiting for Jesus' revealing. Again, he's just introducing what he's going to say more about in chapter 15, that there's a fuller thing yet to come. When Jesus is revealed, everything will be put under his feet. Jesus will be king of everything. And he talks about the power. This will come more to it, introduces the next section. What he spends most of his time talking about here is unity. Remember, something has happened. Grace had come to the people in Corinth. They were not what they used to be. We have, just in that little introduction, he mentions Gaius, Chloe, Crispus, Stephanus. What we have there is a mix of men, women, Roman, Greek, and Jew, all in one melting pot. This is the people of God, designed to be together, the good news has done something, and yet they have here these issues. They are quarreling. Something about the way of the world, this, the, the, the spirit of the world seeks to reinforce divisions where God would like to build things together. I don't want to say all that there is to say. Andy's going to pick up more on the theme of unity and how we respect leaders and the role of that in the church. I just want to say Paul's answer about unity is not primarily practical. He's doesn't give them a list of things to go and do. It's a theological answer. The answer to unity is the oneness of Jesus. Was Christ divided? No. Neither is the Spirit. Read chapter 12 when we come to it. We'll see through the one Spirit, through the same Spirit. We have all these gifts through the one Spirit, the same Spirit. There's, a, there's one Lord. There is one Spirit. The fact that we have gifts at all actually should reinforce our oneness. And I think that's probably what I was so grateful for this morning, that we had here the gifts of bringing a scripture, the gifts of bringing a song, building up the body. And that's what the gifts were for. Um, they were partly the answer to unity. Um, in chapter 8, right at the center of the book, ah, sorry, um, here we have this... Prayer, and I don't, I don't know if you know, um, it, for Jews, the, the most important prayer, and as Jesus highlighted, the most important commandment was this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we should love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
In chapter 8, right at the beginning, uh, the, right in the center of the book, Paul has, takes this, the beginnings of this, what's called the Shema, the Jewish prayer, and he reworks it. And he says, there is one God, our Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, through whom all things came and through whom we live. It's Jesus that reorientates all things. We live for God because of Jesus. So our issues of unity are not the same as for Corinthians or the people in Corinth, but the theological point is the same. We have one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus, one Spirit from whom all things, all the gifts come. Without that, we're always likely to let things like wealth or status or what color we are or where we live in the city, all of those things could be sources of division for us. But God has poured out his spirit on us. So things like politics or experience or things that we know, how educated we are, don't count for what brings us together. God trumps that. So what? So use your gifts. Use them for building one another up. Um, confess your bias. If you do feel like, actually, I, I sense what they, they saw in, in Corinth, that actually I'm more attracted to this kind of leadership, or I've denigrated this kind of leader, confess it, put it out there, honor those who shape and lead you. Prioritize love over knowledge. You can also use this prayer from 1 Corinthians 8. Remind yourself that there is one God and one Lord. I'll leave that up there for a moment. The wisdom of the cross. Let me read again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, he quotes from here from um, Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of this that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I don't know what your favorite uh, literary device is. That's not the question you were expecting, was it? Anyone, anyone remember GCSE, English literature, favorite uh, literary device? Do you have a simile? Anyone for a simile? You know, got a nod for a simile. Anyone for a metaphor? Be like a big metaphor. Metaphor, metaphor. Anyone else? Anonymatopoeia, yeah, we do like anonymatopoeia, but what we have here is a massive oxymoron. Here's a few for you. Uh, do, do feel free to contribute, but I, I found when trying to think of these, it's very hard to stay on the right side of the line, what was okay. So don't shout out if you're in any doubt. Um, <laughs> so, friendly fire, unbiased opinion, funny German. Uh, no Germans in the house? I don't know. I think we're safe. Okay. A minor miracle. Uh, sustainable fracking. Corn chicken. Um, um, at the heart of this passage is the biggest, most ridiculous oxymoron that you can imagine. The Messiah crucified. does not make any sense. It, this, in this oxymoron sits the kernel of what it is, uh, something about the nature of our identity as God's people. God's family gets begun with what for all the world looks like a ridiculous contradiction. And reflection on this contradiction actually informs so much of what we understand as characteristic it's like the core of what it means to be Christian. Things like, the first shall be last. The meek shall inherit the earth. How about this picture here you see in Revelation? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Whoever wants to be first must uh, be last. Who wants to be the greatest must be the least among you. As Jeremy read earlier, everything is loss compared to Jesus. Love your enemies. When I am weak, then I am strong, Paul writes, when he writes again to the Corinthians. A prisoner for the Lord, even. And we hear about the disciples who rejoiced that they were worthy of suffering for God. This heart of what we are is somehow this deep contradiction that has transformed and will go on transforming our values. What the world says is important is different to what we know is important because of this, the Messiah crucified. And he was, as Paul says, he was a scandal to the Jews. Of course he was. The Messiah did not die. It didn't make any sense. And he was foolishness to the Greeks. Different people rejected this message for different reasons. 
for the Jews. He didn't fit their expectations. They were... They cared about what the Bible said. They cared about the Torah, the law. And they knew that their leaders in Jerusalem had looked at the Torah and Jesus did not fit with what they thought the Torah was saying. For the Greeks, it seemed irrelevant. So what about a Jew that dies as a criminal, no less, thousands of miles away in a distant corner of the empire? Not just, not just irrelevance, but disgust. I mean, what is this that the... The criminal gets to be the hero of the story. You know, discussed actually the whole idea of crucifixion. It was distasteful. It was not polite dinner company kind of chat to talk about crucifixion. And also, actually, as Paul goes on to say, distaste about the way it was communicated. It seemed un- unsophisticated. It didn't meet their expectations. You know, we live in a slightly different time. A lot of those ways in which it's scandalous are slightly different for us, but a lot of them are the same. People now do know about Jesus, although it's a bit confusing. I think sometimes at my work the other day, I was on a different table in the canteen at lunch. Someone was like, so why do they call it Good Friday? What, what happened on Good Friday? And someone was like, yeah, that's when he rose again. And I was like, well, <laughs> let me just... <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I had to lean over from one table and go, well, actually... It was more of a forward-looking, it's because it worked out all right in the end. That's why it's good. Um, people know about Jesus, but they don't necessarily put all the things together. You know, this is, there's a, there's a, actually, there's a scandal almost of familiarity, where people think they know. There's a scandal of, and there's a, a busyness, and a, a feeling of, it's not for me. I, I don't need it, this idea that truth doesn't have the same currency anymore. Actually, this is not new. It's not new. It happened in Corinth too. But yet there the gospel broke in, transformed and won the community. Um, I want to just take a minute. Think about it. Think about your work, your culture, your places of, you know, that you, you uh, move around. What is it? What is the, the stumbling block? What is the scandal that inhibits the gospel for you? So I'm just going to take a drink a second. We believe the gospel still has power today. I'm going to tell you what I think. This isn't everything, but this is, this is the gospel as we read it. There was a man called Jesus from Nazareth whom God did amazing things through when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Amazing things. People raised from the dead. People healed. People set free. And we get to read about this in the four books of the Bible we call the Gospels. Some of the most historically reliable sources of that era. This man, Jesus from Nazareth, was handed over to be killed at the hands of the empire of the day, having been rejected by the rulers of his own people for whom he just didn't match up with what they thought was the right way. But unknown to them, God had already accounted for this. They put him to death by nailing him on a cross. But the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, raised him from the dead. 
because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. Jesus died as the Messiah or the Christ, we read. He was the representative of his people and of us. He died for our sins. After he was raised on the third day, he appeared to many of his disciples. They saw him, they ate with him, they marveled at him. Many of them went to their death because of their hope and their belief in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof that God is with him and was with him and will make him the king of all the earth, the best ruler that we could ever hope for. God set a day, then he will judge the world with justice. He will put all things right, all wrong things he will make right through him. Not only that, but those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, he said, we, we can call on him and God lets us in to be part of his family. God has accepted us with no other preconditions. But he has given us, not only that, but he's given us the Holy Spirit as a comforter and a guide and proof that one day, too, when Jesus is revealed to judge the world and put it right, we get to share in his resurrection. So if you want to today, you can join God's family. And it will mean nothing less than a whole life, body and soul transformation by the power of the cross and the resurrection. If you have already, as it says, confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, then it's great to be part of God's family with you today. But nothing less than a whole life, body, soul, transformation by the power of the cross and the resurrection is in store for you too. Paul lived his message. He didn't just preach it with words, he lived it. This is a picture of a guy called Wang Yi. And just recently, well, until recently, he was the leader of one of the largest house church movements in China, in a place called Chengdu. And um, he has just been imprisoned for nine years by the state. This is what he said. He said, I firmly believe that Christ has called me to carry out this faithful disobedience through a life of service, under this regime that opposes the gospel and persecutes the church. This is the means by which I preach the gospel, and it is the mystery of the gospel which I preach. His church's ministry, the things he did, included campaigning against forced abortions, helping political prisoners. This is what him, not just this, but him and his church. He was a, he's a legal guy by background. He's, a, you know, he was, he's mixed in high places, yet willing, for the sake of the gospel, to stand against a regime that won't acknowledge it and would seek to put the gospel under state control. And he's willing to say, no, this is the means by which I preach, he says. I'll go to jail gladly for it, though I have done nothing wrong. Paul was a bit the same. In a city where social climbing was a big thing, Paul didn't meet their expectations. He deliberately didn't get paid by them. Actually, we read in lots of other books, he was happy to receive support from people. But in Corinth, it wasn't okay. There was a big system of what they called patronage, where you would get your favorite preacher, he would preach to you nicely, tell you about different gods, and you'd give him some money, and you'd all feel good because you're all in the same kind of clever club. But Paul says, no, I'm not, going to pay for you. I'm not going to get paid by you. I'm not going to reduce myself to being enslaved into this way of thinking. 
he, he, he made a firm decision says, to not aspire to the status of a professional because he wasn't willing to let the gospel become just another commodity which could be exchanged. The gospel is too powerful for that. He was too, Paul did not become respectable. He embodied the oxymoron of a crucified Messiah. He saw that for him to do it any other way would contradict the nature of the cross. Look at chapter 4 later and see that, how he talks out. And this might look different if you're a, not an apostle, but rather you're a student or a scientist or a caregiver or parent or an actor or civil servant or pastor in a Chinese house church. But if your life bears no marks of the cross, something is missing. So what? So if the message is powerful, speak it. If this upside-down thing is true, then meditate on it. Let it inform everything that we do. It'll be at least this, but certainly more. That It means there is hope in suffering. Like Jeremy said, in loss and in things, that is not an ultimate defeat. Getting low is more important than getting ahead. There's no such thing as a nobody to God, so don't think that you are nor don't fall into the trap of trying to be a somebody. Laying things down holds great, great power. Those of you who have laid down opportunities and jobs and promotions for the sake of the kingdom know that has great, great power. Being transformed by the message is not optional for us. Finally, I want to talk to you about transformed spirituality. I'm going to read... Uh, the, the next bit of uh, Corinthians, and then we'll come to a close. So in chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. May that be true in China too, Lord, we pray. No, we declare a wisdom, uh, God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor, nor no ear heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. For God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's quoting now from Isaiah again. But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Me, infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. 
For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not just, are you not acting, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? How do we know somebody? How do we really know them? We listen to them, we talk to them. Actually, one of the best ways, as an experiment I'm trying with my family, is that we live under the same roof. I shared a house when I was a student with uh, uh, three guys, and we still joke today about how he, Tim, used to leave his cereal bowl uh, on the floor such that the Weetabix went around the rim and was literally unchiselable off by the end of the day. Like, and you'd find it under a chair, and you'd know this is like 10 minutes of like knife and fork to get the, the Weetabix. And even though, I'm, I mean, I barely see Tim, but even now, 20 years later, I'll still go... It will, Weetabix would definitely come up if we were there. Living with one another is the best way to get, is one of the best ways to get to know someone, though it doesn't mean it's straightforward. God has come to live with us. Not only that, but he's come to live in us. Being spiritual, like Paul's writing about here, is really an anticipation of the age to come. It's, it's being ready for the future. And Keith read from Ephesians earlier about how the Holy Spirit is a deposit for us, guaranteeing our inheritance. Paul actually talks in chapter 15 about spiritual bodies, which may at first sound like another oxymoron. How can you have a body which is spiritual? Like the, bod- the body and the spirit, surely they're two different things. But it's not an oxymoron. He's just describing a state of what it will be like uh, when we are fully like God has intended. Actually, also, how Jesus' body really was. The spiritual is, is God's sphere. The natural is our sphere where we feel at home, but they're both real. We see in Jesus' resurrection what it, the full extent of what that means when spiritual and, and human interact. God's sphere and our sphere get enmeshed together. Jesus was equally at home in both God's sphere and ours. That's what they saw. They saw a body which did amazing things, this body which flitted between our sphere, God's sphere. And our hope one day is that Jesus finally comes and comes back to our sphere. But it's also our hope that, and this is where we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, the thing that gives us the superpower that Steve talked about, that one day our bodies will be like Jesus' body, perfectly at home here and in the world. And you know what? It's, it's this kind of spiritual people that the world needs. It says in Romans, the world, whole creation is longing for the unveiling of the children of God. We want to see the kingdom come. We want to see the spiritual fully enmeshed with the natural. To be spiritual means to be fit for the future. To be future-proofed doesn't mean we're less human. Actually, we're more human. We're more like God intended. It means we're more earthy, made like these hands, more practical, more political, not less political, more caring about the environment, more relevant, more loving, kinder, quicker to forgive, quicker to wash up, quicker to say you are wrong, more self-controlled. The, the fruit of the Spirit is as important as the gifts. Paul congratulates the church in Corinth. Said, You've got all the gifts you need. But he says to them, you're not spiritual. Maybe today, spirituality for you looks as simple as making sure you're self-controlled and going to bed on time. That's spirituality. 
It's not all of spirituality, but it's part of spirituality. Being gentler, kinder, full of self-control, loving, full of joy. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul asks. And the answer used to be, well, it was a rhetorical question. Of course, no one. No one knows the mind of the Lord. Actually, now the answer today is you. (laughs) You know the mind of Christ. So what? So if you have the mind of Christ, tap into it. You'll find it here on a Sunday. You'll find it in community. You'll find it in brothers and sisters. You'll find it in the Word of God. You'll find it in prayer. Live fit for the future. Training now is about cultivating the kind of life. Even telling people the story of the gospel is good news. Let me quote one more thing for you. It says, telling people the good news is habit-forming. And this habit is, like all Christian virtues, one that genuinely anticipates in the present time the life of the age to come, where celebration of Jesus' rescuing, healing lordship will be unstinted and unending. Treat your body with honor. We'll talk more about that in the future weeks. Don't settle for an appearance of spirituality. Lord, we want more gifts here poured out amongst us, but for the benefit of others. Gifts are great. Fruit is great too. And live spiritually. The world needs it. Ask the question, what would be a spiritual response to this? Whatever it is in front of you. So, I'm going to hand back to Steve now. But to say, the gospel's powerful. We long to see today an outpouring of that demonstration of the Spirit and power. A whole life transformed according to cross and resurrection. So, bless you.